Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen and we are on episode number 285. Today's topic is the commanding heights. The idea is that government should not try to micromanage everything, but should occupy the commanding heights of the economy and every major part of the economy. So we'll get into that. But first, I wanted to invite you to email me at info at theclimatereport.net if you have any comments, questions, or feedback, or if you want to suggest topics info at theclimatereport.net. So what is the Climate Report all about? The Climate Report is about how to solve the problem of climate change. I don't pretend to be at the levers of power, but if we were, if we the people were at the levers of power, we would want to know what we want the government to do. And I've uh, come to the place, after 284 episodes, I've come to the place where I think most people are getting it wrong. Most people, that is most environmentalists and climate activists, are getting wrong what mainly should be done about climate change. Point number one, it's not about carbon. It's not all about carbon. It's not all about decarbonization. Carbon is one element of nature. And if I were an evil genius wanting to get rid of the human race and most life on Earth, I would get everybody to narrowly focus on carbon. But it's not about carbon, it's about nature. This planet of ours is the only place we know of in the known universe that supports life as we know it. And we human beings, for better or worse, have reached the point where we have the capability to, to destroy nature. We have the capability to undermine the very basis of our existence. We have that capability. We've known that for sure since 1945 when the first nuclear bomb went off. We've known for sure that if we wanted to, we could end life as we know it. And now, since 1945, we have two other threats that could quickly end life as we know it. One is climate change, and the other is mass extinction. We are in the sixth great extinction in the history of the Earth. Because of human causes, we are causing the disappearance of species more rapidly than any time in Earth's history in the last 65 million years. So we are capable of destroying life on Earth. And carbon is only one way that we are capable of destroying life on Earth. We could destroy life on Earth by getting rid of our pollinators, just to name one example. So it's not all about carbon. It is about nature, and it is about limits. We need to know how nature works, and we need to stop the destruction now. We need to stop deforestation now. We need to stop fracking now. We need to stop subsidizing big ag now. We need to stop subsidizing fossil fuels now. 
So we're going to be talking about Biden's climate plan, and I don't care how nice Biden's climate plan sounds, if he's not calling for an end, an immediate end to deforestation, especially on public lands, he's not serious about ending climate change or ending the sixth mass extinction. And the topic of today's show is commanding heights. The idea is that government should not micromanage our lives or micromanage the economy, but the government should occupy the commanding heights of the economy and every major portion of it. The government already does occupy the commanding heights of our economy, but we're not supposed to know that because we're supposed to be under this illusion and delusion that there's something called a free market economy. There is not a free market economy now. There never has been a free market economy. There never has been laissez-faire. There never, you know, laissez-faire is this term that says the government is going to keep hands off of the economy. It has never kept its hands off the economy, and it never will. So we need to disabuse ourselves of the illusion that says the government is somehow leaving the economy alone and letting the economy work its magic. The government does occupy the commanding heights of the economy. So let's just acknowledge that truth and move forward knowing that the government is going to occupy the commanding heights of the economy. It's just a question of whether they're going to do that for people or plutocrats. People or profits. So we're going to get into Biden's climate plan in just a minute, but first I wanted to share with you Hart's principles. It's like when we critique Biden's climate plan, it's from a principled standpoint. And here are nine principles through which we critique Biden's climate plan. Principle number one, the government should occupy the commanding heights of the economy and not micromanage everything. We'll get back to that, but the, the commanding examples of the government occupying the commanding heights would be offering a universal basic income or making collective bargaining much easier, or stopping the rape of public lands, or stopping agricultural subsidies, or breaking up monopolies, or taxing wealth, or spending, you know, transportation spending is always occupying the commanding heights of the economy. It's just a question of whether transportation spending is going to be in favor of fossil fuels or something more lighter weight, something easier like, you know, surface mass transit. Defense spending occupies the commanding heights of the economy. NASA, uh, you know, spending on NASA or NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, could be occupying the commanding heights of the economy. Spending on Medicare for all could be occupying the commanding heights of the economy. Social Security occupies the commanding heights of the economy. Spending on public education does occupy the commanding heights of the economy, and it could be even more. Public broadcasting could occupy the commanding heights of the broadcasting space, of the news space. Instead, corporate media currently occupies those commanding heights. 
So that's principle number one, that the government should not micromanage the economy, but should occupy the commanding heights. Principle number two is that government policy should favor people, not profits. Universal basic income is a way of favoring people, not profits. Medicare for all is a way of favoring people, not profits. And pro-union laws supporting collective bargaining is a way of supporting people, not profits. Let people collectively bargain with their employers. Currently, the right to collective bargaining is very limited. Principle number three, eliminate half of the economy that doesn't make a positive difference in people's lives. I've talked about this over and over. It's one of my core things. It's one of the things you'll hear a lot from me and not very much from other people. We spend $750 billion a year on defense that we don't need. That's part of eliminating half the economy that we don't need. Manufacturing cars, manufacturing new cars, more new cars, more new cars, more new cars is part of that half of the economy that we don't need. Manufacturing new planes, manufacturing new helicopters. If you can't eliminate it entirely, then reduce it by 90%. And that 90% is part of this half of the economy that we don't need. Building more new roads, more new roads, more new roads is part of that half of the economy that we don't need. New buildings, new buildings, new buildings is part of that half of the economy that we don't need. If you can't eliminate it entirely, then reduce it by 90%. Another part of half of the economy that we don't need is no new fossil fuel infrastructure, no new drilling, no new mining, no new fracking. That's half of the economy that not only we don't need, but it's actively causing harm. Principle number four, it's not about carbon, it's about ecological living, and it's about ecological limits. If we focus on decarbon, if we focus on carbon, we will miss the big picture. If we focus on decarbonization, we will miss the big picture. If we allow ourselves to focus on carbon and decarbonization, we will be fooled by charlatans. There are lots of charlatans on Wall Street who want to uh, give us this or that solution to carbon, this or that solution to decarbonization. And a prevailing theme there is that they want you to do something that they think, or, or that they want to make you think that they have a solution just long enough to sell you something. But just because they can sell you something doesn't mean it's a solution. Principle number five, it's not about emissions, it's about the entire life cycle of a product. So it's not about having cars that, are, that, that have lower emissions during their useful life. It might be about eliminating cars altogether or at least eliminating the 80 or 90% of cars that we don't need. So it's not about emissions, it's about the entire life cycle of the products that we use. And it's not about the carbon footprint of the life of the products that we use, it's about the ecological footprint. It's about the entire impact that those products have on our planet and on our life support systems. 
Principle number six, no new fossil fuel infrastructure. This includes not only mining and drilling and, and fossil fuel oriented power plants, but it includes new roads, brand new roads. We have enough roads. We have enough sprawl. We don't need any more roads. We don't need enough sprawl. If we can't eliminate new roads entirely, we can at least eliminate that 80 to 90% of new roads that we don't need. But the reason we have new roads is not because we're doing what people need, but because we're, we're not catering to people, we're catering to profits that needs to stop. Principle number seven, lose weight first and then bulk up. So it's like a, a weightlifting analogy. Power lifters and bodybuilders, sometimes they're in, in bulking up mode. And you're, when you're bulking up, you're gaining both fat and muscle. And then when you're, you know, when you're trimming down, you're mainly losing the fat and without losing too much muscle. So our economy needs to lose weight first before we bulk up. Okay, all due respect to people who struggle with weight. If a, person, if a person's ideal weight is 150 pounds, but they weigh 300, then clearly the first thing to do is to try to trim off as much of that extra 150 as possible. Our economy is fat. Our economy has crap that we don't need. The reason our economy struggles is not because we have too is not because we don't have enough of it, but because we have too much of it. An economy is supposed to deliver to people what people need. Much of our economy does not deliver to people what people need. Most of our economy takes from us what we need. We need to get rid of those parts of the economy that don't have what we need and are in fact depriving us of what we need. New roads, new roads, new roads. That's not what we need. Most people who are able to live and thrive do so despite all this crap that we have around us, not because of it. Principle number eight, economic growth and GDP, that is gross domestic product. Economic growth and GDP are ridiculous concepts and should disappear from the national conversation. By contrast, Biden's climate plan has stuff about economic growth and we're going to grow, you know, most economic growth is harmful, not helpful. We need to lose this notion that economic growth is a good thing. Our economy should be designed to be good for people. Economic growth and its product byproducts and after effects usually are not good for people. Much of our economic growth is about building interstate highways and selling cars and selling oil and making and selling weapons. That is not the kind of economic growth that we need. Economic growth is a terrible measure of human well-being. It's like there was a Brazilian general who said the economy is doing well, but the people aren't. 
So how is it that the economy can be doing well, but the people not? It's because the economy has so little to do with how well people are doing. We have been sold a bill of goods. Let's take GDP, gross domestic product. What's missing from GDP? Well, GDP does not count investments in nature, investments in people, investments in democratic institutions, or investments in communities. Gross domestic product does not include any of that, and yet we need investments in nature, investments in people, investments in democratic institutions, and investments in communities. We need all that, yet it is not included, it, most of it is not included in gross domestic product. Gross domestic product does not count the value of a forest until you chew up a forest and put cattle on it or put uh, corn on it or soybeans on it or so, some agricultural uh, enterprise that's harm, profitable but harmful. When your economic system only counts the value of a forest after you've destroyed it, you know something is wrong with your economic system. Principle number nine in Hart's Climate Principles, people should have the freedom to do the work that they choose and not be driven by the need to pay the bills. The idea here is that we should focus on socially beneficial job creation. For instance, hiring a teacher or paying a teacher better is an example of socially beneficial job creation. Training people to do organic farming is an example of socially beneficial job creation. Uh, hiring people to do ecological forestry is an example of socially beneficial job creation. Uh, training people to do ecological and organic landscaping is an example of socially beneficial job creation. Uh, hiring teachers to do pre-K, providing pre-K, providing preschool is an example of socially beneficial job creation. Giving people free college, free public college is an example of socially beneficial job creation. Here's another example of socially beneficial job creation. Let's take defense spending, which is currently $750 billion a year, conservatively speaking. If you distributed that on a per capita basis to Americans, they would each get $3,000 a year to live on. And then those people would take $3,000 a year and spend it on what they need instead of just giving it to rich people in the upper middle class to spend on frivolities. That would be an example of socially beneficial job creation. So let's do that instead of investing in a culture of death. So let's go to Biden's climate plan and let's look at it and let's ask the question, does this occupy the commanding heights? Is this a public policy, government policy that occupies the commanding heights? Uh, and we'll find that it, in fact it does, but is it simple, understandable, specific, or effective? So he says here, 
partner, partnering with farmer, we're going to partner with farmers and ranchers so that better agricultural practices and deployment of digesters generate new sources of revenues. So these uh, digesters, it's talking about anaerobic digesters. So if organic matter decomposes in the absence of oxygen, that's called anaerobic digestion. And the thing is that it produces methane. Methane is a bad greenhouse gas, but if you can capture it and you, you can turn it into fuel. So the idea is not without merit, but the application is, is bad. I've read up on anaerobic digesters and I've concluded that they're bad news. For one thing, it's a government subsidy for big business and it's subsidizing some of the worst farming operations uh, out there. You know, your concentrated animal feeding operations. Anaerobic digesters are these big machines that subsidize concentrated animal feeding operations. The last thing we need to do is to subsidize concentrated animal feeding operations. We need to get rid of concentrated animal feeding operations. In fact, when I talk about eliminating half of the economy, that we don't need half of the economy that is harmful to people. What I'm, you know, included in that list, near the top of the list, is concentrated animal feeding operations. We do not need them. We need small organic farms. We need biologically diverse small family farms, which will ultimately produce more food, not less. We don't need these big monstrous monstrosities known as concentrated animal feeding operations. They don't produce good food. They don't produce healthy food. They are unspeakably cruel to animals and they, uh, they're bad for the, they have a bad carbon footprint. They have a bad ecological footprint. They pollute the water. They pollute the air. There is almost, there is nothing, I was going to say there's almost nothing good to be said about a concentrated animal feeding operation. But the reality is there is nothing good to be said about a concentrated animal feeding operation. Whatever they do can be done better with small, organic, biologically diverse farms. But Biden's climate plan wants to subsidize concentrated animal feeding operations. So you're going to subsidize the worst farming operations on the planet. That's not a good policy. So here we're talking about commanding heights. Yes, the government is wanting to occupy the commanding heights of the economy in such a way as to subsidize and promote concentrated animal feeding operations, some of the worst businesses ecologically, in terms of human health, in terms of animal cruelty. These are some of the worst businesses in existence and Biden's climate plan wants to provide a subsidy for them. Continuing to read, we're reading and critiquing Biden's climate plan. It says, for our family farmers, ranchers, and landowners, the climate agenda is not just about growing nutritious food and making it as accessible to all families. It's also about having water they can rely on for growing that food. It's about local farms and fresh food for every community, and it's about making sure that floodwaters in the Midwest are not taking away family farms that have fed our people for decades. 
these are nice ideas, but if you're going to grow nutritious food, you don't subsidize big agriculture. Big agriculture, a lot of times, is, is not about growing you know, nutritious food. Concentrated animal feeding operations are about, you know, you pump animals full of antibiotics. The animals are not grown in a way that they eat, a, have a biologically diverse diet. You need animals that have a biologically diverse diet so that they have good micronutrients. So concentrated animal feeding operations are not about growing nutritious food. He says here, it's, it's also about having water they can rely on for growing that food, okay? Concentrated animal feeding operations pollute the water. They pollute the water. He talks about here about having local farms and fresh food for every community. Well, if you want local farms and fresh food for every community, you're not gonna continue to subsidize the biggest worst farming operations in existence. So how do we do, how should the government occupy the commanding heights of the economy in relation to food? Well, for one thing, you give people a universal basic income so that they have the money to buy food. You give people Medicare for all so they don't have to rely on one employer for their health care. You know, when we tie health care to employment, what we're doing is subsidizing the worst businesses in the world. That's not the way you occupy the commanding heights of the economy. If you give people Medicare for all, then there's an emphasis on preventive health care so that when a person has a problem with diet, they can do something about that. Their doctor can give them recommendations for their diet, and then they can go implement those recommendations because they have a universal basic income and they can afford to buy food. If people have a universal basic income, then they can afford to buy healthy, locally grown, nutritious tasty food instead of having to buy chips at the corner market or a Big Mac at McDonald's. How else do you occupy the commanding heights of the economy so that people can be healthy? Well, you give people free public transportation. You stop spending your transportation dollars on widening highways, which only empowers multinational corporations to plow through our community and pollute it along the way. And if you give people free public transportation, then they no longer have to spend $8,000 per year to own a car. That's on average, the average car costs $8,000 per year to own and operate, and people work at their jobs. You know, that means people are having to work a month or two on their jobs just to pay for the car that they drive, and they have no choice but to drive a car because we don't have free, clean, fast, efficient public transportation. So you'll notice here that a lot of things I'm suggesting would actually shrink the economy. And if the government would occupy the commanding heights of the economy in a way that is responsible, then we would be shrinking the economy. We would be uh, diminishing the family budget, and we, we would be you know, diminishing the expenses that are needed in the family budget just to survive. Your transportation, your ex expenses, your medical expenses, expenses that go to food that is not healthy, 
the government could be occupying the commanding heights of the economy in such a way as to take expenses off of people. But as long as the government is using the commanding heights of the economy to cater to big business, then big business is going to be in a position to charge us $8,000 a year to own and operate a car because we don't have any choice. So I've got about 30 seconds left. I want you to email me at info at theclimatereport.net if you have any comments, questions, or feedback, or if you want to suggest a topic for this show. That's all I have for now. Thank you for joining me. Come back soon. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, and we are on episode number 286. Today's topic is the commanding heights of the economy. The idea is that the government should not micromanage our lives. Nobody wants that, but the government should occupy the commanding heights of the economy. So we'll talk about that in a minute, but first I wanted to invite you to email me at info at theclimatereport.net if you have any questions, comments, or observations, or if you'd like to suggest a topic. So what is the Climate Report all about? The Climate Report is all about how to solve the problem of climate change. I don't pretend to be at the levers of power and in fact, I think the people are not at the levers of power because we don't have a real democracy, but we need to know what we want. We need to know what we're looking for. We need to know what we're asking for. We need to know the true nature of the problem so that we can then propose an intelligent solution. Now, in relation to climate, I've come to the place where I believe that most people are getting it wrong. Most environmentalists are getting it wrong. Most climate activists are getting it wrong. Insofar as the sole focus is on carbon. So, you know, some people focus on carbon. You have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas. It is heating up the planet. It's going to cause a lot of destruction. Already has caused a lot of destruction. But if I were an evil genius wanting to do in the human race, I would get them to narrowly focus on carbon. Because if you narrowly focus on carbon, then somebody is going to sell you something so as to reduce your carbon footprint. All of a sudden, in the last few months, Wall Street has discovered climate activism. Wall Street has discovered that it's cool to proposed solutions that supposedly decarbonize. But nature is not carbon, and carbon is not nature. We live on the only planet we know of in the universe that supports life as we know it. We are able to destroy our life support systems, or we are able to preserve and nurture and cultivate our life support systems. So it's not about carbon, it's about nature, and it's about the life support systems that nature provides. We can buy solutions to carbon 
and we can buy solutions that supposedly relate to decarbonization and we can destroy nature all at the same time. We need to focus on nature and the life support systems that it provides and not be fooled by charlatans who want to sell us decarbonization. So that's what the climate report is all about. It's about how to solve the problem of climate change. And part of the solution is to realize that climate change is a symptom. You know, if you have a fever, you want to control the fever, but you also want to know what's causing the fever so you can get at the root problem. Climate change is a problem. We want to, you know, climate change is like the earth having a fever. So we want to cure the fever, but the only way we'll do that is to get at the underlying uh, source of the problem. To me, the underlying source of the problem is that we have an economic system that is totally driven by the whims of a few. We have a very few people who run the show and they want, you know, they want to continue to run the show. They want to, to convince us that we have a democracy or something. But our democracy is like one of those little, you know, a, a car seat that has, where the kid has a steering wheel and the kid, you know, is doing the steering wheel as if he is driving the car. When we vote in these elections, but we don't have a real choice, uh, you know, is, is, is health care on the ballot? No, because both candidates are against health care. Is peace on the ballot? No, because both candidates are pro-war. Is public banking on the ballot? No, because both candidates are bought by the big banks and the insurance companies. So the plutocrats, that is the ruling elites, are good at trying to make us think that we have a democracy. But in fact, we don't. We have a world that is run by a very few people, and those very few people like the fossil fuel economy because they make a lot of money on the fossil fuel economy. So climate change is a symptom of having power concentrated in a very few hands, and they don't want to give it up. Because if you have power, why would you give it up? Democracy, real democracy, genuine democracy, is a threat to power. So climate change is a symptom of plutocracy. It's not a symptom of human nature. It's not a symptom of people being free and doing what they want. In fact, climate change is a symptom of people being enslaved by a very few people at the very top. So we want to change that. And the way we're doing that today is looking at Biden's climate plan. You know, I, I suppose it's a good thing that finally we have a president who has a climate plan. But is this climate plan truly a Green New Deal or is it just green capitalism? There's a big difference between a Green New Deal and green capitalism. And we'll see that Biden's climate plan is green capitalism. It's not really a New Deal. It's more of the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Unfortunately, Biden's climate plan is not a real departure from business as usual. So let's look at Biden's climate plan and talk about how he proposes to occupy the commanding heights, because that's what governments do. They occupy the commanding heights of the economy. It's just a question as to whether they will occupy those commanding heights in, the favor, in favor of the people or in favor of big business and plutocrats.
So it says here, Biden will review regulatory roadblocks to new innovations and invest in climate-friendly farming, such as conservation programs for cover crops and other practices aimed at restoring the soil and building soil carbon, and in the process preventing runoff and helping farmers deploy the latest technologies to maximize productivity. So climate-friendly farming is a good thing. Conservation programs for cover crops, etc., are a good thing. Restoring the soil and building soil carbon is a good thing. Preventing runoff is a good thing. But my question to you is, is any of this simple, understandable, or effective? If the commanding heights is being occupied in favor of the people, then it will be then then the government's proposals will be simple, understandable, and effective. Well, I'm I'm finding Biden's climate plan to be to not be very simple, not be very understandable. A lot of times it's just vague language throwing out terminology, but like what are you gonna do for this? You know, do you have like ten five or ten simple understandable proposals that you're willing to get behind or are you just using nice language? I can tell you that there's not going to be any climate-friendly farming as long as Joe Biden is subsidizing concentrated animal feed feeding operations. So concentrated animal feeding operations are these operations that typically have like a thousand animals or more it's really actually a million pounds of animals. So if you have cows, it's like 700 dairy cows or many thousands of chickens, but it's like a, a million pounds of animals. Concentrated animal feeding operations are among the worst corporate citizens on the planet. They are responsible for like destroying pollinators. If you think that, okay, these animals are going to get some kind of feed made from corn or soybeans, etc., all of this feed comes from huge operations that are bad for pollinators and bad for wildlife and bad for birds. We can talk about conservation programs for, co for cover crops, but are you going to fund these things? The best kind of conservation is to incentivize, is to redistribute the land so that each farmer has 100 or at most 200 acres to work with you know, farmers don't want to be surrounded by poisons and toxins. They only have these highly toxic, poisonous operations because that's the, that's the business model that has been handed to them. It's like, get big or get out. That's what Secretary Butts said back in the 50s and 60s. You're supposed to plant fence row to fence row, and you're supposed to, you know, get big or get out. You're supposed to have hundreds, if not thousands of acres. Otherwise, you just can't, uh, you just can't sustain a farming operation. Hey, I know. Let's give everybody universal basic income and Medicare for all so that you don't have to struggle to survive. And then some people are going to want to farm. Uh, some people would love to get out of the cubicle, out of the corporate office, out from behind the wheel of a delivery truck and get onto a small, biologically diverse, local, organic farm that grows actual food for actual people. A lot of people would love to do that, but the economics aren't there, and the government could 
occupy the commanding heights by giving universal basic income and Medicare for all and allowing strong union labor laws, allowing you know, meaningful collective bargaining. Workers, and, and that's, uh, that's important because you know, the farmer might be full-time on the farm, but they might have a spouse that has a union job. If you have a spouse that has a union job, then you've got somebody, you've got more support for that local farm. Instead, what we have now is just people struggling to survive, and these farming operations are controlled by monopolies, you know, food monopolies, Dean Foods, Cargill, Monsanto, ConAgra, Archer Daniels Midland. These are huge food monopolies that need to be broken up because if you have to sell your product to a food monopoly, then it's the food monopoly that gets to set the price. If you have to sell your product to Walmart or Kroger, they set the price, you don't. It's anything but a free market. So if the government wanted to occupy the commanding heights, they would split up these food monopolies. Let's continue to read in Biden's climate plan. It says Biden will create new opportunities to support deployment of methane digesters to capture potent climate emissions and generate electricity. With these efforts, family farmers can benefit with the help of the clean and help lead the clean energy revolution. Well, this is an example of something that only foolish people are going to believe this. You have to be completely and entirely uninformed to believe this rhetoric. Because for one thing, he's talking about methane digesters. If you know anything about methane digesters, for one thing, the economics of these things are questionable. It might generate enough electricity to run the farm, but it's not going to be able to export any electricity. Plus, a methane digester is a device. It's like a car or a plane or anything else. It's a product that has to be manufactured. Whenever you have a product that needs to be manufactured, then that's going to have an ecological impact. That's going to have an impact on the carbon footprint. So you get these methane digesters to generate a little bit of electricity. But the main thing, the main problem with this is that methane digesters are a subsidy for concentrated animal feeding operations. Methane digesters are for the purpose of putting animal crap into them so that it decomposes and then that gives off methane and then that the methane can be captured and either used as natural gas or used to generate electricity. The concept is not bad, but the application is terrible. You don't want to subsidize concentrated animal feeding operations. Besides, he says here, family farmers can benefit from this. This is not about concentrated animal feeding operations. Yeah, some of them are family farms, but they are big farms. It's not your little quaint, idyllic, biologically diverse farm such as you'll find from like my man Joel Salatin in Virginia or bar farms here in in Kentucky. It's misleading to associate methane digesters with family farms. Methane digesters are for concentrated animal feeding operations 
we don't need to subsidize concentrated animal feeding operations. We need to get rid of their sorry asses. They're terrible for animal cruelty. They're terrible for the human health. You know, they, they, deliver, they put pathogens in the air and the soil and the water. Concentrated animal feeding operations put toxic chemicals into the soil, the air, and the water. And I'm not a vegan or a vegetarian. I'm saying there are humane ways of raising animals and it's not through concentrated animal feeding operations. So the government should occupy the commanding heights of the economy so as to eliminate concentrated animal feeding operations and empower small family farms, lo growing local organic food for actual people. The average bite of food travels 1,500 miles before it reaches our plates. It need not be that way, but it is because of the way that the government occupies the commanding heights of the economy, occupies the commanding heights of food and farming, so as to subsidize the worst operations and, uh, and put small family farms out of business. It need not be that way. It needs to change. So let's continue reading in Biden's climate plan, and we're going to critique it from the standpoint of, yes, the government does occupy the commanding heights of the economy, but how does it do so? Does it do so in favor of people and the planet, or does it do so in favor of profits and plutocrats? Our government primarily occupies the commanding heights of the economy in favor of profits and plutocrats, not people or the planet. So here the Biden climate plan uh, suggests that mitigating climate impact of urban sprawl. So we're going to have a, a little blurb here about how to deal with urban sprawl. So let's see what the Biden climate plan has to say about this. It says, housing policy can be used as a tool to battle climate change and expand the middle class. Many lower and middle income Americans are forced to live far away from job centers due to high housing costs, leading not only to workers being overburdened by long commutes, but also to higher emissions associated with increased traffic and extra long commuting times. Altering local regulations to emit climate, uh, so we will alter local regulations to eliminate sprawl and allow for denser, more affordable housing near public transit, that, and this would cut the commute times for many of the country's workers while decreasing their carbon footprint. It says, this means that emission reduction strategies not only combat climate change, but also save consumers money. Yet many households often need support to afford the initial investment. Local housing authorities and utility companies have stepped up and helped households invest in energy-efficient upgrades by offering flexible financing plans and tax credits. So, okay, it's probably a good idea to look at housing policy. It's probably a good idea 
to look at how you know lower and middle income Americans are forced to live far away from job centers due to high housing costs. But is this, do I see anything here that is simple, understandable, or effective? Well, in order to be understandable or effective, it has to be specific. He's not saying anything here that is specific. And if a politician is not being specific, then they're just jerking you around. If a politician is not being specific, then they're leading you along a garden path. And it's not just Biden, it's his whole team that he's built around him. But you have, you know, the, these bright-eyed, bushy-tailed people in the Sunrise Movement, these young people that say, oh, we didn't get our candidate Bernie Sanders, but Biden, we, we got to the table with Biden and got him to adopt this climate plan. And, okay, fine, but the climate plan that Biden gave you is not simple, understandable, or effective, and it's, and it's not specific. In fact, anything that, that's here, it looks like micromanagement. It looks like the federal government micromanaging localities, micromanaging your urban center. We don't need the government micromanaging our urban center. We need the government occupying the commanding heights in favor of people and the planet. One way you occupy the commanding heights in favor of people is stop spending transportation dollars on highways. Highways, 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 widening the highways, always widening the highways. When are we going to widen another highway? When are we going to add another lane? If you want to combat urban sprawl, if you want to lower people's commute times, if you want to save people money on their commuting expenses, then damn it, give, give us a bus and give us a bus station. They're gonna, there's this highway in our area that I calculated. I'll, I'll eat my shirt if this highway is not going to cost a billion dollars or more. I calculated very conservatively that it's going to cost $800 million. Add, any, add you know, another $200 million to that and you've got a billion dollars. They're going to spend a billion dollars to build a whole new highway that bypasses Louisville. I know. Let's not. How about let's not build a whole new highway that's going to bypass Louisville? Why are we building a whole new highway that bypasses Louisville? Well, there'd be the stated reasons, and then there are the real reasons. The stated reasons might be to help traffic flow or to stimulate economic growth. But we've already talked that most economic growth is not a good idea. Economic growth has virtually nothing to do with the well-being of people. Especially on a net basis, most economic growth is bad for people. Because for one thing, you can't grow infinitely on a finite planet. We have a, fi a planet that has finite resources. For another thing, just because the economy grows by a dollar does not mean that dollar does anything to help the vast majority of people. And so build another highway. You have more exits, more gas stations, more truck stops, more malls. The last thing we need. We have enough. We have enough floor space for everything we need. We have enough developed urban areas for everything we need. We have enough highways for everything we need. What we need is buses and 
ultimately trains. You know, trains are a good idea and we need to do some trains, but trains require more time to build. Meanwhile, start with the buses. Get people in the habit of riding surface mass transit and then you can get to where they're riding trains. But if you spent a billion dollars, how much, you know, highway congestion could you eliminate if you spent a billion dollars or a half that or a fourth of that on buses, buses and bus stations? What if you spent, a, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars on buses and bus stations? Would that help deal with highway congestion? You bet. So the government occupies the commanding heights in how we, um, how we spend transportation dollars. From the 40s to the 50s to the 60s and on, we've spent transportation dollars at a ratio of about 100 to 1 in favor of automobiles and trucks instead of buses and trains. How about we reverse that ratio? How about if we stop spending on infrastructure that's just designed to accommodate more and more and more cars. Stop the madness. Stop the bleeding. If you're in a hole and you want to get out, you stop digging. No new fossil fuel infrastructure. That means stop widening the highways. And let's stop having the government micromanage our lives or our localities. If Biden's climate plan or any other policy is not simple, understandable, and effective, we need to call BS. You're, you're, you're jerking us around. You're yanking our chain. You're not clarifying anything. You're not leading. You're just obfuscating, and you're wanting to spend our money on behalf of the plutocrats. Stop. Let's look at how else Joe Biden proposes to occupy the commanding heights of our economy, supposedly so as to do good things for climate change. He says here, we're going to enact a national strategy to develop a low carbon manufacturing sector in every state, accelerating cutting edge technologies and ensuring businesses and workers have access to new technologies and skills with a major focus on helping small and large manufacturers upgrade their capabilities to have both competitive and low carbon futures. Okay, you would think that it's a good thing to have a low carbon manufacturing sec uh, sector. Actually, I'm all in favor of that, but I have a different definition of what low carbon means. Low carbon doesn't just mean solar panels and windmills and electric cars. In fact, quite often those solutions, we need to do some of that, but that does not mean that these things are low carbon. We don't need a low carbon economy necessarily. We need a low energy economy. If we keep growing our energy needs, growing our energy needs, growing our energy needs, and say, oh, that's okay because we've got solar panels and windmills. Well, that's not decarbonization. If we keep needing more and more and more and more and more energy, I call it APE, A-P-E, artificial, artificially produced energy, but if we keep needing more and more and more and more and more energy, we're not going to win this game. I don't care how much lip service you give to low carbon. 
So it says here we're going to do a low carbon manufacturing sector. We're going to make sure workers have access to new technologies and skills. We're going to help uh, small and large manufacturers upgrade their capabilities. Well, that's corporate welfare and it's micromanagement. We don't need more corporate welfare and we don't need more micromanagement. And when he talks about cutting edge technologies, technologies with or without patents, I want to see technology without patents, especially if it is a technology that was produced at taxpayer expense. Why are we patenting this? If it was developed at taxpayer expense, why are we saying that only a few people, you know, only the patent holder can use this technology? That is a theft from the people. If something was developed at public expense, it should be public domain. A patent is privatization of public assets when it was developed at public expense. Plus, technology is not going to save us. Technology, meaning electronic technology, comes along with a lot of e-waste. We don't need more technology until we have something called extended producer responsibility. That means the manufacturer of the technology has to take it back and give you a deposit so that we're not just putting this stuff into the landfills and then go digging more raw materials out of the mines. That is not the way to do things and it needs to change. That's all the time we have. If you have any questions, comments, observations, or you want to suggest a topic, then please email me at info at theclimatereport.net.